Uh, in mentioning the group of people that I have praying for me, and in, uh, it dawned on me that it, the ones that I know about, at least, and the ones who contact me are my brothers in Christ. And I appreciate the fact that uh, my brothers, fellow men, lift me up in that. Because sometimes church is seen as something strictly for women. And it gets feminized. And there are men who believe that. And we need to help those men see that that's not the truth. Um, One of the things, and we're getting such great feedback on these prayer pals, that one of the things that we need is we need more men involved in that. Now, uh, you can sign up for prayer pals either on that West Ark Facebook app that we have, or you can just get one of these yellow cards and put it out there. Now, I do think that it's, I don't know, just anecdotally, I think it's probably true based on what I see, that more women use Facebook and social media, especially in our church, than men. I'm not going to chide you men for that. If you don't use social media, God bless you, okay? It is a tool of the devil, and it is, it is lousy. And uh, if I, I want to get out of there, but I can't. And um, So, no, I'm not going to chide you for that. But I am going to say here, man-to-man, speaking to you, help us out. There's a lot of young men, a lot of these uh, uh, young boys that would appreciate it if they had a mentor who was praying for them and thinking about them as they go through school. Either have someone specifically in mind or you just put yourself out there and the Lord will provide. And what a great ministry that would be. Okay, that's the ask. Uh, we're in Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19, John's going to start a series of statements where he's going to say, I saw. And every one of these things that he sees is an image of heaven breaking in on earth. That heaven is not just going to be a faraway place to where we are going. But heaven is a kingdom that is coming to us. And we often use that phrase, we're going to heaven, let's go to heaven. One day we're going to heaven. He's gone to heaven, she's gone to heaven. But in Revelation, heaven comes to town. Heaven shows up to make things the way they're supposed to be. And it just gets bigger and bigger as we finish out the book of Revelation. First we have the hero like no other hero who comes from heaven to earth. And finally the city of God moves in and invades earth that alone ought to get us thinking about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven but we'll save that for the upcoming weeks right now let's take a look at um, the later part of revelation 19 and john's first vision that he sees would you pray with me father we ask for the opportunity to absorb your word today and to be called into service to know that Heaven is is coming closer and closer to this world that we live in. And that your kingdom is breaking into this world. And Father, every time that that your spirit moves in our hearts and causes us to grow up, to become a people more like Christ, that's, that's one more advance in heaven's recreation of the heavens and earth. And Father, I pray that we would hear your word today, be with me as I preach it, and I pray that we come out of this 
worship assembly today changed. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Verse 11, John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there, and its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. And he wore a robe dipped in blood, And his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. And on his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come gather together for the great banquet of God has been prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings and generals and strong warriors and horses and their riders and all of humanity, both free and slave, small and great. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies, and they were gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the white horse and his army. And the beast was captured And with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived everyone who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead body. Amen, the Word of God. And now let me just say, after being reverent, yuck. Okay? Uh, And I think there is the appropriateness of having a yuck at this point. Um, But I didn't want to finish with that. This is a grisly scene that John sees. This is a slaughter. And the vultures are coming to this feast. But it's the beast and the false prophet who've caused so much pain and suffering. Whose whose, uh, rebellion against God has been ended. But there's, there's three things that are very different about all of this than any ordinary scene of of war and conquest that that we're familiar with. First of all, there's a different kind of hero that shows up at first. And there's all of these clues in his description. We start naming things that he's ruling with an iron rod. He has eyes of flame. He has a sword of the word of God in his mouth. He's got faithful and true written on him as a name that he knows. And then he has a name that only he understands. He's got a robe dipped in blood. And you may be thinking, ah, that's where I've, I've heard this about 
the rider on the white horse. It is, but you have heard it before. And if you're one of John's first hearers of this word in in chapter 19, then you've definitely heard it before. Because this is a callback to all of those descriptions of Jesus, the risen Jesus, when he's giving his word to the seven churches of Asia. And so nowhere in this does it say that the rider on the white horse is Jesus Christ. But it gives all of the descriptions that points to the fact that, oh, this is the risen Christ. Because all of these descriptions come together to show you that the way he was described and has been described means that he is the hero we've been waiting for. He is the hero that appears at the end to achieve the full victory of God. This is the lamb that was worthy to open the scrolls and carry out the will of God. This is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And all of these descriptions, though, point to a different kind of hero at the same time. The rider on the white horse. There's there's three things in particular that that are interesting. The the, the robe dipped in blood. Now I want to read to you from Isaiah 63. Because in Isaiah 63, there's a prophecy of the hero of God who shows up to win the battle of God for God's people. Not to lead them, not to rally them, not to inspire them, but to actually win the victory for them. In Isaiah 63, it goes like this. Uh, You've you've got a a watchman on a wall, and he's saying, Who is this who comes from Edom, from the city of Bozrah, with his clothing stained red? Who is this in royal robes, marching in his great strength? And the answer comes back, It's I, the Lord And that's that name of God, not just generic Lord. That's Yahweh announcing your salvation. It's I, the Lord, who has the power to save. And they ask, why are your clothes so red? You look like you've been uh, treading out grapes on the wine press. I have been treading out grapes on the wine press uh, alone because no one was there to help me and in my anger I've trampled my enemies as if they were grapes in my fury I've trampled my foes their blood has stained my clothes for the time has come for me to avenge my people to ransom them from their oppressors and I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed so I myself stepped in to save them with my strong arm, and my wrath sustained me. I crushed the nations in my anger and made them stagger and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. I love those parts in movies where you see the bad guys getting away with everything or on a TV show, and then finally the hero rises up just all by himself, and you know okay, this is going to get good because he's going to just tear into everyone. And then I get disappointed when that doesn't work. This prophecy is saying that God showed up alone and took care of business. God showed up alone and defeated the enemies of God's people. Now, that image stuck with the people of Israel for centuries and generations. It's no wonder then that the church of God in the first century, takes this image and says, wait a second, we know that image, we know that scene, let's apply it to our Savior and our Lord. But there's a difference. 
instead of his robe being dipped in the blood of his enemies because he has stomped all over them, his robe is dipped in his own blood. And that makes all the difference. Because the way he wins and the way he becomes the hero is that he is not afraid to sacrifice himself and shed his own blood. And the different kind of hero that we see in Jesus Christ is not a hero of retribution and vengeance, but a hero of obedience, a hero of sacrifice. And in that way, he triumphs. You'll see that when you look back at earlier chapters in Revelation. Uh, Take a look, for example, at Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, the Lamb is being praised. And in verse 9, the assembly of heaven is singing the Lamb's praises. You're worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals, and to open it. And by the way, those of you who have songwriting gifts... Turn this into a song that we can sing, okay? I I don't know. Find some time to write some songs. Please, those of you, you know, and I want to sing this one day. They say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and to open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on earth. It's his blood being spilled that wins the true victory. That's one of the first things that's different about this hero. The other thing that's different about this hero is he only has one weapon. No armaments, no armor. He doesn't, he doesn't have, you know, we want to get behind the hero who has the best weapons. One weapon. Right now, there are contests in the world. Rulers, uh, dictators, uh, you know, armies, trying to prove that they have the weapon that will end all wars or win their war. So we've got North Korea shooting off missiles. We've got other nations. You know, they don't rattle the saber anymore. They, they ignite the rocket. And we want to make sure that we have more striking power than anybody else. But this hero is different. This hero doesn't have a weapon that is mightier than any other weapon in a conventional sense. It's a sword, but it's the sword that comes from his mouth. And you get the metaphor. You understand it. It's his word. It's the word of God. It's the Word of God being described as a sword that that, that slays and cuts. As a sword that is effective. And this has been mentioned more than once in Revelation. In Revelation 1.16, the risen Christ is pictured as having a sword that comes from His mouth. In 2.12, He tells the churches that He can come and make war with them through the sword that comes from His mouth. In other words, the Word of God will be the sword that gives authority. The sword for centuries has been the symbol of political authority. But in the kingdom of God, it's the word of God, it's the truth that's the symbol of authority. And so even in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer in verse 4 says that the word of God 
he's trying to describe it, and he says, it's like a two-edged sword. And it cuts, and it exposes, and it reveals. That's what's different about this kind of hero. The final thing that's different about this hero is that his rule is the rule of a shepherd. If you look in, verse, in, in uh, chapter 19, what we just read, in verse 15, in verse 15, we hear about that, you know, from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. You know, if, if, if you didn't know all the background stuff here, this sounds rather brutal. Ruling with an iron rod? That doesn't... You know, we, we, we have the phrase, he rules with an iron hand. It doesn't sound that gracious. Is this really the lamb? This sounds like we've just, there's just a new sheriff in town, a new boss, a new tyrant, a new dictator to take over. And, and it comes from the Psalms. And it, and it, but it also comes from Revelation 12. This rider on the white horse is the child that is born to the woman who will grow up and rule with an iron rod. And that image of the iron rod is a symbol of a particular type of rule. Now here's what's interesting. All we get is the word rule. And a ruler or somebody who rules... You know, with our American DNA, that hits us as, hey, that sounds like a tyrant. That sounds like a king. That can't all be good. We better watch out here. The word that's used there in 19 is the word to shepherd. It's the same word that's used in chapter 12. It's the same word that's used in chapter 7. It's the same word that's used in chapter 2. And it's only used of the Messiah and God's people who rule alongside him. It is the rule, the guidance, the overwatch of a shepherd. All the other passages, and I don't know what kind of English translation you have, but sometimes you'll hear about the beast ruling or the, 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 the leaders and the nations on earth ruling. And you're thinking, so what's the difference? That word is not a shepherd word. All that means is they're given authority. And authority can be abused. But a shepherd rule is a very different kind of a rule. And that's what's different about this kind of hero. And this kind of hero leads a different kind of army. As I was reading this, and I hope you noticed it too, I started noticing that army that follows him. We kind of pass by it. The armies of heaven. And maybe we expect, you know, a bunch of angels outfitted in battle gear. And that would be impressive. But that's not what we're given. This army of heaven that follows the rider on the white horse We're not told that they're angels. We're just told they're the armies of heaven. And they're riding on white horses, just like the rider on the white horse. And the only thing they're outfitted with is pure white linen robes. Hmm. Where have we seen that before? Well, if you look in 611... There's a group of martyrs. 
the souls of everyone who's been killed because they remained faithful to the Word of God and they were unjustly killed. And they shout to the Lord and they say, Sovereign Lord, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world? How long until you avenge our blood for what they've done to us? Notice that they're not looking for vengeance. They're asking, when is God going to set things right? They're crying out for justice. They've already been slain. And in response, each one of them is given a white robe and they're told to rest just a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants, had joined them. And and then in in verse 14 of chapter 7, we we come back to this. And um, in verse 13, John's asking, who... He's looking at all this imagery and he says, now i got to know, who are these that are clothed in the white robes? Where did they come from? Actually, that's one of the elders that asked John a question. And uh, John says, well, you should know. And, And he says, let me tell you, these are the ones who died in the Great Tribulation and they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. I don't know about you, but any time I washed up in blood, it doesn't come out white. It gets stained. And if my clothes ever got blood stained when I was a kid, that was bad. That meant you weren't going to get that stain out. How is it that washing robes in the blood of the lamb is going to make it white? It's going to make it white because this is, a, this is an image of purity, of holiness. And the blood of the Lamb is not a detergent. The blood of the Lamb is a symbol of martyrdom, of sacrifice. These people in their white robes have become pure because instead of trying to achieve purity and perfection on their own, they've trusted in the Lamb whose own robes are covered in His own blood and they're trusting in Him to grant them righteousness and purity. On Sunday night, we've been studying 1 Corinthians. There was never a church as messed up as Corinth, you know? Oh, I've talked to churches. We've all heard from churches that have bad times, but I dare say you're not going to find a church with as many problems, at the same time at least, as Corinth. When you start reading through the letter, and they've got a guy there who's... uh, He's in an affair with his stepmother. Uh, You've got rich people taking poor people to court, suing them, embarrassing them. You've got people standing up and trying to out-preach one another in worship. Well, that's a big change. All we do is fall asleep in worship. They've got people, they've got competition preaching going on. And, 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 And then you have people that are even preaching in languages that no one can understand. There's all kinds of people getting drunk at the communion. Wow. Uh, we don't serve enough to get drunk. And, and so it's, it's just, it's, it's absolute chaos in Corinth. And they're all doing it because they're self-centered. And they're all doing it because they're only looking out to their own interests. But at the beginning of the letter, Paul addresses them as the saints in Corinth. How on earth can he get away with that? He calls them the sanctified ones, the holy ones. That's what the saints mean. You're the ones who've been made holy. It's because he wants them to identify as the people who've been made holy by God. Not as the ones who have special knowledge, 
not as the ones who have the special ability to do things right, not as the ones who are getting it all perfect. He wants them to identify as those who've been made pure by God, not themselves. He's giving them the secret to who they really are. Church, this army that follows after the rider on the white horse and they look just like him and they've been made pure they're dressed in white that's us that's the church some people say oh this is the church militant this isn't the military wing of the church this is the church and our our strategy is simply follow the guy on the white horse do what he does, go where he goes, and get your robe washed in his blood. Purity. I want to say this. Here's the good news today. There are so many of us who've been struggling to serve Jesus our whole lives, and after Sunday after Sunday, we, we, we slap ourselves down with our own failures. Ah, I didn't get it right. I didn't do what I'm supposed to. And the only thing that's white about us are our knuckles because we're trying to hold on and do everything right and we keep failing and we keep beating ourselves up. You need to stop that. You need to stop that. Because that's not what makes you and I pure. What makes you and I pure is the rider on the white horse and his blood, the lamb. And you trust you trust in that and you follow him. Likewise, there's another side of that. We might say, oh, I trust, I trust, but I see a lot of people who they need to get clean. They need to get cleaned up right now. Okay, you can stop that too. <laughs> because uh, you don't need to worry about who else is coming to wash day. You just need to go there yourself, okay? And when we follow the shepherd, guess what? We don't get a license then to beat up on all of God's enemies. Preaching has been used as an offensive weapon too many times to tear people down. One of the great writers of the, of the past used to say that any time that you attack people from the pulpit, you're like a man on a horse riding down people on foot. Mm. But remember, the word of God is a double-edged sword. And so the, the one who preaches it and the one who dares to wield it had better watch out or it's going to cut back in your direction um in this image this is a different kind of army they carry no weaponry they have no need to defend themselves they have no need to attack others because their leader has the only weapon that will ever be needed the sword that comes from his mouth that's it there's no other weapon necessary there's no other way to achieve that victory so what you have here too is you have a different kind of battle did you notice that when john sees the battle the beast who's the corrupt rulers of this world and all the nations and the false prophet the false religions everybody who's lined up against the rider on the white horse they're all gathered for war and then the beast and the false prophet are just captured 
And you can, you can, you can search through that and you can say, hey, uh, did we miss the battle? Did we skip the battle? I mean, what happened? What movement did they make? Where did it go? There is no battle. Not worth mentioning. Because this is one of those occasions where the fight was won before it started. It was over before it started. I remember once when I was uh, a kid, and, and it was one of those rare moments when, um, when we were going to go get pizza. We didn't do that growing up in my house. But this was a special day. We were going to go to Pizza Hut, and we were going to get pizza. But Dad wanted to watch a boxing match. And I enjoyed boxing matches too, but there's boxing match, and then there's pizza. And, and so I was like, oh, and I will forever be grateful to the victor of that boxing match because they go through all the preliminaries and Howard Cosell's talking and they got to introduce, you know, Dr. Ferdy Pacheco, the fight doctor and all this, you know, and they go through all that and everything. One round, bam, it's over. It's down. I'm like, thank you. We go to pizza. The fight was over before it started. That's what happens here. The fight's been won. It got won the day that Jesus was obedient to God and spilled his blood for the salvation of all nations and tribes and tongues, all peoples. And so they are slain by the word that comes from his mouth, that sword, the rider on the white horse. Everyone who rebels against the rider is going to be taken down by that word of God, the sword that came from his mouth. It's a different kind of battle. It's over before it starts. Sometimes it's you and I that get slain by that sword. And when we do, thank God for that. Because there is that rebelliousness in us that pits us against God's will for us. And sometimes we need to be cut down by that sword of his word. But whatever, whoever it is, and, and notice here that there, there's no discrimination. He says that that feast that the vultures gather for is, is made up of those who rebel against God's shepherd rule because they want to rule. And they're rebel, whatever they, whether they're highborn or lowborn, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're slave or free, everyone across the board who sets themselves up in rebellion to God cannot stand against the truth of God's word. And that also includes you and I. So the best thing we can do is submit ourselves to the rider on the white horse and follow him. In our baptism, it is described as both a birth, a washing, made pure, cleansed of our sins, but it's also described as a death. We die to this world. We die to the fascinations of this world. We die to ourselves. And that's what's contained in our baptism. So whether your baptism is past tense, future tense, or present tense today, I want you to understand that you and I get to be 
in that different kind of army. And you and I are going to experience the victory of the different kind of battle if we'll follow the different kind of hero, the rider on the white horse. Let's stand up. Let's sing this song. If there's any encouragement that you need today, just come up here and let us know. All right? Let's sing.